And we'll find through Paul's words and through Paul's testimony that there is joy in reality, joy in the valley. And that is really the dominant theme of the book of Philippians. There are other sub-themes and other thoughts, but we find this, that joy in the Christian life is the dominant theme through this very brief letter that he writes. So we're going to look at verses 3 to 5, and I'd like to take bigger chunks, but when I, when I look at what's there, I, I just think just unpacking these three verses are just incredible. And I ask myself the question, what does authentic Christianity really look like? And that's a very, very important question for us to ask, because I think immediately things will jump into your mind. What does a Christian look like? If it be, and we need to know that because if we're shaping the lives of our children and we are teaching classes and we are pointing people the way, they're going to want to know what does it look like? What does a Christian look like? What does authentic Christianity really look like? Now, I don't know about you, but the first thing that comes to my mind is how you look. Your physical appearance could be your haircut, the way you've dressed. That's the first thing that we tend to think about. And to be honest with you, through all the centuries of the church, a lot of attention has been given to that. And I wouldn't say it's unimportant because God cares about everything. We're representatives. We're made in His image. We reflect His glory. God does care about how we look. He made us. But is that the most important thing? We could define authentic Christianity as a certain set of rules and guidelines that we follow. And this is a trap that I so easily jump into because it, it, it really satisfies my longing to have structure. <laughs> I mean, just tell me what to do. And I like to be able to make up all my rules and regulations and my list of do's and don'ts and then follow them. And that gives me a good measuring stick for how I'm doing. And it also gives me a good measuring stick on how you're doing. <laughs> now, I'm not talking about rules and regulations as far as God's commands, because I think those are authoritative and those are inspired. But we all tend to, like the Pharisees did, add to it just to help God out. And so we're thinking, if you're a real genuine Christian, then you're going to do all these things and you're not going to do all of these things. Or we might say that to find authentic Christianity, this will be the, the, the spiritual response, we must go to doctrine. Doctrine is supreme. It is the queen, the theology is the queen of all of the studies. And so if we want to establish what is real, authentic, true Christianity, we're going to focus on doctrine. Doctrine is the teaching of the Scripture. And I think that kind of makes me feel, if I say that, a little pious. You know, we're going to stand by the truth and hold to the truth. Or we might say this, and I'll give you a fourth, we'll probably go many others, is we measure authentic 
and genuine Christianity by our performance of what we do. And that is also very satisfying to busy, industrious people who like to get it done. And I fall right into that too. Well, I've done this, this, and this, and I'm involved in this, this, and this, and I'm going here and over here and doing all these projects. And so uh, I feel pretty good about my Christianity. And typically, if you, if you ask a person, how are you doing? They'll tell you what they're doing. In other words, I say, how, how are you doing spiritually? How are you doing in your walk with God? Well, I've been doing this and doing this. They tell you what they're doing. It's not really answering a question. So how do we answer that? How do we answer this question? What does real, authentic Christianity look like? And I think we've got to come back with a very simple question. What does the Bible say? <laughs> I tell people when they, we get into these arguments about dress and rules and regulations and Christians do this and Christians don't do this and, and when is the Lord's return? When is the rapture timed? We get into all these discussions. And people, Christians, even tend to argue about how Christianity should be lived. So I say, let's stop and everybody take a deep breath. <laughs> Okay, and let's open God's Word and let's find out what He says. It's simple enough. And so I'd like to begin as we, we launch into this section in Philippians is to really set up by asking this question, what is authentic Christianity? What does it look like? What is the mark? In other words, they can tell that the people at Valley are Christians. They are genuine, authentic, real Christians. And I would say to you, it is not how you look. It's not the way you dressed. It's not what you're wearing. It's not the rules and regulations that you've made up and followed. It is not our doctrinal statement. And it is not your level of performance of what you're doing for God. What is it? And you'll find that uh, if you want to, you can turn back with me, but I'll have it up on the screen here too, in John 13. And I'll just give you a little setting of John 13, because in John 13, Jesus is in the upper room, and, and from that upper room, He will be leaving to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, where He prays, and then He is betrayed by Judas, taken off and tried and crucified. So these are his final words, the final words that he gives. And he, and he says in verse 34, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Now, a disciple is, the Greek word is mathetes. It means one who follows the teaching, a disciple. These are his disciples. And I don't know how you can make it any clearer than what it says right here. Not only does he tell you the mark of authentic and true Christianity is how we love here one another. And he says, the same way I have loved you. 
the very first part of that chapter, he says, he loved them to the end. When you begin to really examine the incredible love of Jesus Christ for you, for you. (laughs) That's why we sing praises like we have this morning. When you understand His incredible love for you. And then He says, this is what I want you to do with one another. Now, we're going to find later that the, the second part of the great commandment, you love God, you love your neighbor as yourself. Now, who is my neighbor? It's everyone. Even outside this congregation, this gathering, this community of believers here. But the distinguishing mark of authentic Christianity is love. And I don't see how anyone can argue that point. And it is, it is continued to be reinforced through the Scriptures. Now, a follow-up question is what does that love really look like? What, if we were to say, okay, it, it looks like Christ loving us, what does that love look like? And the text that I have turned to a number of times and, and shared is in the, the last, uh, second to last chapter in Galatians, Galatians chapter 5. And what's interesting that Paul, as he also writes this, an earlier letter, but he describes to the church in Galatia exactly what love looks like. And he says, after he had already described the works of the flesh, in other words, how the works of my fleshly nature, then he says the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, fruit is, we would compare that to evidence, the fruit what's manifested, the fruit of a genuine spiritual existence, of a right relationship with the Lord. What we could say is the fruit of authentic Christianity, he says the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then he goes on, but I want you to see something here in in this verse, verse 22 of Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Then he goes on, joy, peace, forbearance, or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. So if he says the evidence of authentic Christianity is love, is love one of a long list? I think really what it is saying is love is the list. And the way love is manifested is with these others. And the very first one that is mentioned is joy. So how can you tell that the people at Valley love each other? Well, we're going to talk about joy and peace and patience. He says, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Those are manifestations of love. So you can see how I'm I'm getting to joy. I want you to understand joy in its context, that joy is the evidence of love. It is the expression, it is the very first of the expressions of love. So this is what God wants for me. This is what God wants in your life. He wants you to be full of joy because that is the expression of love. That is the mark of true Christianity. 
I think we need to understand, though, that there is a radical difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is tied to happenings. It is tied to events. It is tied to circumstances. And I'm sure that you this past week may have had some happy moments. <laughs> but happiness, uh, even the word hap comes from the word chance. It, it, things happen. And if we were to say, are you happy? Usually I have a pleasant set of circumstances right now. But we need to realize that Paul is writing this letter from prison in Rome. He does not have good circumstances. And not only does he write about joy, he is expressing joy in every part of his being. And, and you think, how can, that, how can that be where a man writes from a horrible circumstance, this is not fun, and he has joy? It's different than happiness. Happiness is circumstantial. And I, I hope you have happiness. <laughs> I, I do. But joy is, one, it's supernatural. It's, it's a gift from God. And secondly, joy is tied to my relationship with Christ. And that's what we're going to see. That you cannot have real, deep, meaningful joy apart from Jesus Christ. Paul's amazing in his expression, and he, he shares about how this joy continues to well up. And that's what we're going to look at here in chapter, in chapter 1 of Philippians. Let's, let's look at verse 3. I'm just going to read three verses, and I'll make three points, and then we'll wrap this up. Philippians 1, verse 3 says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. We're going to look at three verses, three expressions of joy. The first one is when he says, there is joy in remembering you. Paul has a relationship that goes back over a decade now to the time when he first met these people in Philippi. And he talks about from the first day until now, every thought that I have. I thank my God every time I remember you. Joy in all of his thoughts. The story or the backstory to this relationship, and, and I think that, that the Church in Philippi is, is probably the, the one church that Paul is closest to. He has a very intimate, close relationship. There are a number of reasons for that. But it, it, he's really tight with these people. And so he says, I have such joy when I remember you. Now, it's kind of like if you're a grandparent. If, if I just mention one of our grandkids' names to my wife, she just gets a big smile. <laughs> Always. <laughs> Always. Now, Paul's saying that when I remember you, I just, every thought floods me with joy. Now, it's interesting that, that the city of Philippi, it, we talked about last week, is a Roman colony. It is the very first place that Paul reached in Europe. He had been in Asia, and 
he was continuing to advance the gospel through Asia. And then he says that in, in chapter 16 of Acts that the Lord stopped them and the, and the, and the Spirit of Christ for, forbade them from going further into Asia. And they stopped. And then there was a vision at night of someone from Macedonia and uh, in Philippi, that was a region of Philippi, saying, come over and help us. And so they followed that. And the very first place they went was to the riverside because there was no synagogue. You had to have, in, in a city, you'd have to have ten men to establish a synagogue. And typically Paul would go to the synagogue because people were spiritually interested. But there was no synagogue. And so people would worship if they were believers, down by the river. And so Paul goes to Philippi, goes down by the river, and there he meets a group of people. And one of these was a woman named Lydia. Lydia was a businesswoman. And she was the first one to come to Christ, and her entire household came to Christ. The second person that believed upon Jesus Christ was a slave girl. So you go from businesswoman to slave, and... She was not where Lydia was from Asia. This slave girl was from Greece. She was Greek. And she was also demon-possessed and caused a havoc for Paul. She comes to Christ. And then the third family that came to Christ was the family of the jailer, the Roman jailer. So a Roman, we have a Greek, we have someone from Asia, we have a business class, we have the very uh, poverty-stricken young girl, and then we have uh, the working middle class. This really formed that first church. And so this was the beginning of that church. He stayed for a while and then left and went to Thessalonica. So you think, well, how can it be, when when you think back to things that went on before in your life, can you say, well, every thought is full of joy? <laughs> say, well, <laughs> you know, it depends on how you're thinking. Because how about being a parent? Those of you that have, have your kids have all grown up and you say, every thought of my kids growing up brings me great joy. Well, <laughs> you know, I don't think, I don't, there, and, and first of all, there's a difference between joy and happiness. There's a difference between joy and happiness. And it's, I don't think that Paul is saying that everything that happened when I went to Philippi was great. It was wonderful. But there's a context for it. In fact, in, if you look at Second Th- or 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 2, here's how he describes this. At the beginning he says, You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. And then in verse 2 he says, We had previously suffered. This is when he had gone to Thessalonica, the city after Philippi. He said, We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi. As you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you His gospel in the face of strong opposition. How was Paul treated in Philippi? What's the word used? Outrageously outrageously. In the whole event with this demon-possessed girl, and when she had stopped uh, serving her masters, caused havoc in the city, and here's here's what happened to Paul and his companions. You had Silas, you had Luke, you had Timothy. 
that were with Paul. They were falsely accused. Have you ever been falsely accused? Have you ever had someone blame you for something you did not do? We just want to boil up with justice. We want justice. Falsely accused. They took them and stripped them of all their clothes. They were naked in the public square. So they were publicly shamed. They were beaten with rods. They were thrown into the inner part of the prison and put in stocks. Wow. That's what he he is talking about. They treated us outrageously. And there was strong opposition. Then how does he say in Philippians 1, every thought of you brings me joy. Paul was even a Roman citizen. And so everything had been violated. You cannot just throw a Roman citizen into jail. There is a process to go through. But he remembers something. And he's remembering back. Do you remember what happened that night, if you've read through the book of Acts, that when he has been treated outrageously in about midnight, what do you hear coming out of the jail? Paul and Silas are doing what? They're singing. They're singing. Now, is that happiness or joy? There's a difference. It's not a happy set of circumstances. There is something going on there that they see. And I would challenge you. And I will challenge you with this thought. It's probably the most dominant theme that I will ever share with you as fellow believers. It's how you view God. It's how you view God. Your view of God is the most important thing about you. How you view God will determine how you view yourself. It will determine how you view your circumstances. How you view God will determine how you view everything in life. And I found this, that when I falter in my Christian walk, and there are certainly times that I falter, it's usually one of two things. Either there's something I'm not seeing that is true about God, or there's something that I'm refusing to believe. When I falter, it's one of two things. Either there's something I'm not seeing that's true about God, or there's something that I'm refusing to believe. So when I look at this, how Paul describes his view of God. And if you'll, if you'll look at chapter 1 and verse 12, and this gives perspective. He says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, what has happened to him? What, what, Paul's been thrown in jail again. <laughs> so we talk about Acts 16, he was beaten and he was and he was treated unfairly. He was shamefully treated, outrageously treated. Again, we find him in prison. He says, "What has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear that throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord." and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. 
I think it's Josephus, the Jewish historian, that tells us that even Nero's wife became a Christian. Can you imagine being the, the soldier that was chained to Paul? Here you have Paul, and you're, you're, you're in charge of watching him, and you're chained to Paul. You think you got a dose of the gospel? You think you got a dose of the good news? And he said, I want you to realize, okay, a lot of bad stuff has happened. A lot of bad stuff happens. But I want you to know that all of these things have really served for good. Because the gospel is being advanced. Rome was the most strategic city in the world. It was the seat of power. And he was right there in in Caesar's household. And leaders and people of, of great influence were coming to Christ and salvation. Now, if Paul were to look down and say, you know what, I've I got to get out of this prison that stinks in here and it's cold and I don't have my food and, I'm, and I was planning on going to Spain anyway and, I, and everything is going wrong in my life, he's looking like this. And I can tell you this, that when you look at your problems like this, you're going to go into depression because life is so full of junk. And you've had junk this last week and you're going to have junk this week. But when you get your eyes up and you recognize what is true about God, and I would say this, just as, as, a, as, a, as a side point, there are three truths I know about God one, He's all-wise. We know that. He, he states that over and over and over and over again. He, God knows everything. God is everywhere. He is wise not only in what He knows, but what He is putting together in a sovereign plan. He's a great God. He is all-wise. He knows. Secondly, God is all-powerful. He's omnipotent. He is the kind of God that is never limited. He can do whatever His wisdom tells Him to do. Nothing's too hard for God. But the third is this. God is good. He is good. And everything He does is good. You say, well, I don't understand. Well, okay, let's, let's stop. Okay, there are a lot of things we don't understand because we're not God. How can this and how can this and how can this? But you'll find this, of these characteristics of God, He is, is sovereign and knows everything. He is all-powerful and doing whatever He needs to do. And He loves you more than you can comprehend. He is good in everything He does. So the point is, you can trust Him. You can trust Him. And you know what? Not only does God tell us this about Himself, He demonstrates it over and over and over again. And that's why when you, in your time of pain that you had this past year, 2013, or this past week, or what you'll have in the future, yes, it is not happy. It is not pleasant. It is not something that you would want to ever to do again. And it takes a lot of faith to believe that God is sovereign, He is working His plan, and He is all-powerful, and He is good, and everything I will believe. Now, reading this now is not faith, because we, we know what happened. 
Nero's wife gets saved and people are getting, coming to Christ and, and the gospel is being advanced. Oh, oh, I see, I see. That's easy. It's when you don't see that's hard. It's when you can't, you can't see how he's connecting the dots and you struggle with this present struggle that I'm facing now. I don't see any good in this. I can't see how God is, is going to help in my life. And you struggle with him. So, this is what he remembers. <laughs> his pain in, in Philippi in jail and his pain in Rome in jail is put in the context of a God sovereignly working and causes him great joy. That's not necessarily always happiness. And that's why I said it says from the very first time until now, all through every thought that I have of you, when I remember you, I remember you with joy. And that's how God wants you to live, believing the same truth that God had worked. So there is joy in remembering. And then we look at verse 4. Verse 4, Philippians 1. He says, in all my prayers for all of you, always, I always pray with joy. There's a lot of alls in there. <laughs> I like that. He says, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Well, this is amazing. It, uh, what God is doing here through His life to intercede, and I, and I say the second, the second way of joy is, that there is joy in interceding for you. So there's been joy in remembering you. There's joy in interceding. Interceding is, is stepping in for someone else. And this is central to Paul's life. Prayer is central to Paul's life. We say, well, that's all he can do. He's in jail. If you heard people say this before, well, now that I'm getting up in years and I'm old and I can't get around, all I can do is pray. Have you heard people say that before? And I think it, it's, it's, it's a sad thing when we look at prayer as something we just tack on. Because I think if you look at the life of Christ, and you look at the life of Paul, and you look at the, the life of the early church, prayer was central. Prayer is central. Think of it this way. When we work, let's say that everybody at Valley, we just roll up our sleeves and we work, okay? When we work, what do we get done? Well, we get done the kind of work we can do. What happens when God works? You see, when we pray, God works. When we work, we work. When we pray, and I think we work and pray, but when we pray, God works. And God can do more in a moment than we can do in a lifetime. God can do more in a moment than we can do in a lifetime. And sometimes He'll teach us in this way where we're incapacitated or we get to the place. Have you ever been this way with your kids? You say, I don't know what else to do. You've probably been that way a number of times in your life where you say, I don't know what else to do. But prayer should be how we begin. It's how we continue. It's how we, we finish out that everything we do is we depend upon Him in prayer. It is not just a means to get something. I thought prayer is really the end because it is fellowship with the Lord. 
It is spending time with Him. It is laying my burdens out before Him. So this is what is central to Him in the, in the present day church. Our son, we were talking to him the other day, and he's, he's in Eastern Europe now. And he said, you know, the, when we see, when we pray, when we really focus on fasting and praying, it's not so much, there's not magic about not eating, but he said, we just focus on prayer. He said, we have been just amazed at what God has done. And I do think that the modern day church is so caught up in activity and busyness and doing things to the neglect of prayer. Now, I don't mean we don't work hard and we don't stay busy, but prayer should be the very first response to any need that we have. It should be the, the driving work of what God is doing in our presence. And His prayer is an intercessory prayer. In other words, typically our prayers are for ourselves and for our circumstances. I, I would say this, I've used it, Lord, help, help, help. <clears throat> and I want you to change this, this, and this, or change this person for me. <laughs> change that person, change my circumstance. Lord, I need this, Lord, I need this, Lord, I need this. That's how we pray. We, we pray very selfishly. And Paul is saying that my prayers are intercessory. They're, they're for you. And in fact, in, in verse 9, you can see he begins. We'll get into this in, in a couple of weeks. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more. How does he pray? He's not just praying for physical things. Though he does pray for physical things, he is praying for their spiritual and eternal development. And so this is what... His focus is, is on others. Chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And he'll, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And that is his focus. And, and I find this, that when, I, when I'm self-focused, it robs me of joy. When I'm looking at here, let's look at Matt. How, how am I doing? How am I doing? How am I doing? It robs me of my joy and, and sends me into a downward spiral. But there's something healthy about this kind of prayer. It is focusing on those around you. It is interceding on their behalf. And then finally, we'll look at this at verse 5 and see that there is joy in participating with you in the gospel. He says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He actually calls this uh, relationship a, a partnership. The word is koinonia. Have you heard the word koinonia? Now, typically when I hear koinonia, I think of strumming a guitar, sitting in a group, and we're having fellowship. But the, the Greek usage of the word koinonia in that day was actually referring to a business partnership. So if you had two guys, they're going to go in together into fishing business. They're going to buy a boat. Uh, they, they've got a goal. They've got a business they've designed. They're putting their money into this. And we're going to find this, that there has been great contribution from the members of this church. And they're working together uh, in, a, in a business relationship. We, we talked earlier about in the first couple of verses of the, the saints, which are believers. Those are Christians. The overseers and the deacons. All of these form this Christian community. And the overseers and deacons were charged with responsibilities of, 
of leading and of serving, and all the believers are together participating. And this is the experience that they share. Verse or chapter four and verse fifteen, you can see what he says about that relationship. Find it here. He says, um, "Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only." So there were times when that body was contributing, and he's speaking primarily financially. But they had prayed, they had given financially, they had participated with the apostle Paul. Now, what ignites, what ignites all of this is what he says, gospel, the gospel. And if you can underline that in your Bible, because your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, you're going to see that there are five times he says gospel in this first chapter. He, he is focused on gospel is what makes it happen. How do you define the gospel? Well, well simply, we would say it's good news. It's good news. But the good news is not only that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that He was buried, and that He rose again. I would say that the good news is the full message of Jesus Christ. It is His person and His work. And the gospel impacts every aspect of life in this church. The gospel is central. The gospel is is how everything gets moving forward. And this is a word that you're going to find he repeats in every single thing he writes. He comes back. We talked about grace last week. Gospel is that good news of what Jesus Christ has done for you, what he is doing today for you, and what he will do in eternity. And what he has done is he saved us. And what He is doing, He's giving us grace for everyday life. And what He will do is give us hope for the future of being with Him for eternity. And so gospel permeates everything at Valley. This is how we live. And it causes inexpressible joy. So, three ways we joy. We joy in remembering you. Now, we, we understand there's hard things along the way. We joy we joy in interceding for you. And we joy in partnering with you. We get a partner together. And uh, that's what I love about this. I'll, I'll have to save it for later. But the, the whole plurality of elders, that is not the way I functioned when I pastored before. It's not the system. And I, and I you know, over the last several years, I'm thinking, you know what? It is so clear that there is a plurality. You know, when Peter's there and Paul's there and James is there and there's no hierarchy. It is a plurality of elders laboring together. And what a joy to be able to have pastors working together and you have deacons serving and the congregation participating in this. But I get to get to my wrap-up because I'll <laughs> you get so much you want to say. So Paul is... Um, Paul, and I'll come back to the original question. What does authentic Christianity look like? It looks like love. And the first expression of that love is joy. So I want to ask you to bring it home. Does that define your life, joy? Would you say that your life is marked by joy? I didn't say happiness because you probably haven't had enough happenings. (laughs) 
to make it where that's constant. But is your life marked by joy? Typically, we're marked by complaining and criticizing. Is it marked by joy? And the only way that your life will be marked by joy is when you get a right view of God through the picture of Jesus Christ, His Son, given to us in His Word, and you believe that. As I said before, either there's something you're not seeing about God or something you're refusing to believe. Do you believe? Do you believe that God's sovereign? Do you believe He's all-wise? Do you believe that God has all power to change any circumstance in life? Do you believe that God loves you? Do you believe that? And will you continue? So our takeaway, three quick points. Number one, recognize the radical difference between happiness and joy. Because if you tie your joy to circumstances, you will not do well. Two, so you recognize the radical difference. Number two, you recalibrate your mind to a right view of God. What is a right view of God? Well, it's only found in Christ, is revealed in His Scripture, taught to you by His Spirit. And when you see God properly, you will be full of joy. It's what what Paul said earlier, in thy presence is fullness of joy. It's, It's beholding Him. And joy is constant. And then number three, resolve to give God thanks in everything. How can you do that? In prison? Yes. After being beaten? Yes. After being falsely accused and shamed, wrongfully treated with all those things, can you have joy? Yes. And you see, that is what people will see and go, what is that? What is that? Joy. And then we talk about Christ and the power of His gospel to bring that into our lives. And my prayer is this church will be marked, the dominant characteristic, the mark of the people of Valley is love, and it is expressed in joy that is constant and unchanging. And you know something? This week, this can be hard. (laughs) Because I would say, Lord, help me. Because you know what? The first thing that happens is something goes wrong, and you want to complain and get frustrated with God. Lord, help me. And He is there to help you to find that joy. Let's bow together as we pray. Well, we raced through pretty quickly this morning. I'll have to, I'll have to learn to try to get less in. But I, but I hope that you go away today realizing that joy is how God has planned for you to live. That's His will for your life, is to be full of joy. And I think now is just a a great time to pray and say, Lord, I need help. Because this last week, I've complained. I've been frustrated with you. I've wondered why these things happen. I want justice. I, I want you to change things. But help me. Help me, Lord, to see you as you are. To see your attributes, your goodness, and your greatness, and your wisdom, and your eternal sovereign plan for my life. And help me to joy in that by faith, believing you. Help me to believe and help me to give thanks in the midst of it. Lord, I need your help. I need your spirit to show me the way and to remind me of what you've said about yourself 
what you've commanded me to do, what you have shown through all of human history, again and again proving these realities. Lord, I pray you'd help me. And if you're here today and you think, you know what, I, my, my problems are pretty complex and I don't even know if I know the Lord. I don't even know if I have a relationship with Him. Then after our time this morning, we'll be around to talk. We'd love to be able to do that to encourage you in what God has planned for you to have joy in the valley. Father, we look to you because in some, at some times in life, we just don't know where else to turn. We struggle we struggle with being unhappy. We struggle with wanting things changed. We, we don't really feel joyful. And we pray you'd help us through that. Because the things that you have planned for us to be, the designs you have for us as a church, all of them are good. And it's because you love us. Help us to see it. And help us to believe it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll just take a minute or two as the piano plays. Just spend some time with the Lord and contemplate these thoughts. So appreciative of the message this morning. up here, we will transition to the part of our service where we take our offering. We're so grateful for the gifts. Many of you continue to give towards Valley. We know you're giving towards the Lord and His work, and this is an expression of our joy in Him. And so we'll, we'll take our offering, and then I'd like to share a couple things as well uh, after I pray regarding the, um, the upcoming events. We, we have a great opportunity to practice those three takeaways. Could you put those on the screen again? I don't know if we can, but those three takeaways, because we, um, we have a circumstance coming up where we can recognize the difference between happiness and joy. And I don't know about you, but I'm going to be very happy in about an hour when I'm um, eating. Uh, and that's a, I'm not sure if it's joy or happiness, but we'll figure that out. Um, and and then God's, God is good to give us the food. And then I am resolved to give God thanks for it. Uh, so we have a great opportunity to practice. Um, but let's pray for our offering and um, what God is doing. I look forward to seeing you over there. Father, we are grateful for the opportunity again to hear your word. And, and these are uh, great points. And we're so thankful for uh, the way you work in our hearts. And, and all of us are in the valley at times. We're thankful that we can have uh, the right view of you in it. And we recognize that you're good and that there's a greater purpose. And um, We're so thankful for the way you're working here at Valley and for bringing Matt and Diane and just the, the, the privilege that we have to get to know them and to see them be a part of things. And uh, we're just overwhelmed 
with your goodness. And uh, Lord, today, would you bless every single person that's here? Would you encourage hearts? Would you strengthen us? Would we be sensitive to one another? And that this church would be marked by joy. And Lord, for this uh, offering, this time we have to give, we're thankful for the sacrifice of your people and for the many, many gifts that have been given throughout these years. And as we look forward to what you're going to do in the future, would you give us wisdom? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.